All that aside, Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, your word which does endure forever. Thank you for giving it to us, preserving it. We can hear it this morning read in a language we understand, but yet we confess that there's still much we don't understand. We need help this day. We need spiritual understanding. So would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things? Would you open our hearts, reveal to us your great will? Lord, help us in our time of need, living in this present evil age where the dragon and his beasts are roaming about. We need your help, O oh God. So would you do that for your people today? Would you bless the preaching of the word? Would you help me, your servant? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are my rock and my redeemer. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Boris Kornfeld. Boris Kornfeld was a doctor. And he served in a 20th century, mid-1900s, labor camp operated by the Soviet Union. Having heard the gospel at one point from a Christian inmate, he repented of his sin and he turned to Jesus Christ in faith. But he told no one. He told no one until one night. One night he found himself helping a prisoner who was recovering from a very painful cancer operation, deciding that he could no longer fear those oppressive communist authorities who were listening to every word. He broke his silence and he began to comfort the suffering patient with the good news of God's grace. After bearing this testimony and finally getting the patient to go to sleep, Kornfeld returned to his room for the night. And while he slept, he was attacked. His skull was crushed by the repeated blows of a hammer. Boris Kornfeld died for Christ's sake that night because he refused 
to worship the beast. But did his witness matter? Did his witness matter? Was sharing his faith with that suffering prisoner worth the price that he paid? Well, the answer is given by that man who heard his last words. His name, and some of you may recognize it, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he won the Nobel Laureate in 1970 for his writings, his writings that would shake the communist system by exposing its grave inhumanity. His writings would give hope to many Christians suffering under the iron fist of communism. And this is what he said about that merciful doctor. He said Boris Kornfeld's prophetic words were his last words on earth. When he says prophetic, he means his preaching, his testimony. He goes on and says, And his words directed me as they were directed to me. They lay upon me, they rested upon me as an inheritance. He said, you cannot brush off that kind of inheritance by simply shrugging your shoulders. You see, that one simple act of faith, that one silence-shattering conversation led Solzhenitsyn to the foot of the cross where he gave his own life to Christ. And he went on to produce abundant and abiding fruit for the kingdom of Jesus Christ here on earth. You see, Boris Kornfeld's story is one that has been manifest for almost 2,000 years, actually over 2,000 years, from the apostles' bold proclamation of the gospel in the early chapters of the book of Acts to the suffering saints who cling to the cross even today as they face severe persecution, the decision to stand for Christ and his truth in the face of oppression, satanic oppression, is a decision that has been made. It's a decision that's being made even now. And it's a decision that will continue to have to be made until Christ himself returns. Until he returns to finally and fully bring an end to the dragon's war against the church. A war that we're looking at in chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Revelation. Last week we looked at 13, 1 through 10. And we saw the first beast, the first beast of the dragon. And this beast is a symbolic picture of all the empires and political powers throughout human history that have stood against God and his people, the church. Now in verses 11 through 18, we come to the dragon's second beast. And as Christians living today in what has been called even by the apostles this present evil age, we need to be equipped We need to be equipped to persevere in light of this beast, in light of his deceitfulness and his opposition to the church. So to help us understand the text before us this morning, unsurprisingly, I've divided the sermon into three parts. It's going to sound like last week's outline. It's twisted a little bit. So if you're taking notes, our first point is going to be the beast's agenda. The beast's agenda. Second will be the beast's identity the beast's identity, and third will be the church's call for wisdom. The church's call for wisdom. Let's begin with that first point, the beast's agenda. 
Verse 12 gives us the primary agenda of the second beast. What does it say? It says to exercise all the authority of the first beast in its presence. Now, you may have a footnote for this, but more literally, it's to exercise all authority on behalf of the first beast. And then it goes on to make the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So we see that where the first beast represents vicious tyranny, as we talked about last week, the second beast is actually the propagandist, the one who encourages people to worship the first beast. Now, in the Apostle John's day, the main propagandists were priests of the empire cult and what was called the Commune of Asia. This was a council of distinguished city representatives who promoted loyalty, loyalty to Caesar, loyalty to the emperor. Their job was to ensure that the people living in that part of the Roman Empire were good citizens. They wanted to make sure that people gave their supreme allegiance to Caesar. Again, you don't have to look too hard through the pages of history to see this type of behavior continuing, even today, right? To be honest, you see it today. It happens all over the world. There's always some type of propaganda that points us to worship those who were in power. Propaganda and its peddlers of its propaganda are more than alive. It's more than active in every corner of the world. But the text goes on, in order to push its propaganda, look at verse 13. It says that this beast performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Further, we see in verse 14 that these signs have a deceiving effect. And in verse 15, we see that images that are made of the first beast have breath and even speak. You see, magicians and their crafts were commonplace even in the first century. And their chief employers, the ones who sought them out the most, were these pagan temples and even these emperor cult-type places that filled the provinces. Uh, Craig Keener, a historian and commentator, cites all kinds of ancient sources who tell of statues that move or appear to move, statues that give off fireball-type explosions, and yes, even ventriloquist magicians who crafted these idols to look like they were actually speaking to people. Probably what John is referring to here in his immediate context. But it's by such means that this second being is doing something. I want you to see that this second being is parodying. He is a parody of the witnessing church. Remember back in chapter 11, particularly in verse 6, the church's witness, its witness in this present evil age was compared to Moses and Elijah. Now here, the miracles associated with these Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, are now counterfeited by the second beast. Do you remember when Elijah cast down fire from heaven? When he called down fire from heaven upon the prophets of Baal? Remember that? What does it say of Moses? 
he performed great signs in the presence of the Pharaoh, perhaps the beast of that day. You see, the second beast is a counterfeit, just like the first. The first was a counterfeit Christ. This one is a counterfeit miracle worker. Now we're talking about agenda, not identity, so let's see that the ultimate goal of this beast's agenda comes to a head in verse 15 of what it says, to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And we read further in verses 16 and 17 that it causes all, and here we have a clarity of what all is, not every single person with breath in their lungs. No, it causes all types of people, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. The original hearer of this, or reader, would immediately have a context. For in the Roman world, slaves were oftentimes tattooed on the forehead. They were branded, so you know whom they belonged to. Mark's ownership. Similarly, the beast's mark claim those who worship him as his property. They belong to the beast. Also common to this day is soldiers, particularly soldiers in the Roman Empire, they would, they would have a mark on their hand. And this mark would show their allegiance to a particular general. Likewise, the mark of the beast on the hand shows one's devotion as his follower, his allegiance John uses these examples from his own day, what God reveals to him, to make the point about what this mark of the beast actually involves. And interestingly enough, a Hebrew hearing this would probably also think back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, particularly Deuteronomy 6, 8, where what does God tell his people to do with his word? To bind it? on their hands and to wear it before their eyes. Why? So that they would literally do it? Some people did, but that wasn't the point, right? It was so that the word would be preeminent in their lives. They would think biblically. They would act biblically. They would do as God would want them to do. They would live according to God's words. Likewise, the point here is not that the beast demands a literal tattoo on the forehead, but rather a mind that thinks the way that he thinks, a mind that thinks like him. And he doesn't care literally about brands on the hands so much as he cares about the deeds that are done to mimic his own evil ways. The whole point of this is that if you worship the beast... You belong to the beast. You are what you worship. You are marked for the beast by how you think and by what you do. That's the point. And if you refuse to worship the beast, if you refuse to think like the first beast, if you refuse to act like him, then you are at best marginalized from society. That's the point here. Unable to buy, sell, or trade. Is this not what was happening? And, and just, uh, sorry, excuse me, Thyatira and the first letters. Isn't that what was happening? If you don't join these trade guilds and participate in our cultish practices, you're cut off. 
So that's the point here. You're marginalized from society. I would say at best. At worst, what happens? Slain. Killed. Cut off. Discarded as useless. Set up as an example for others. And if you know your history, that was a common practice in John's day. So we see that the agenda of this second beast is clear. Deceive the world into worshiping the first beast and persecute those who refuse to do so. That brings us to our second point this morning. The beast's identity. Who is the second beast? Verse 8 kind of tells us what it looks like. It has two horns like a lamb. So instead of seven, right, or ten, it has two, and it speaks like a dragon. It has a good appearance, that's the point, but hostile words, it speaks like Satan. Anybody else think of Matthew 7? Matthew 7, 15 comes to mind. Jesus instructing the disciples, instructing us, says, beware of false prophets. Beware of false teachers who come to you in what? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How fitting then that this beast's identity would actually be clearly made known to us. He gets a title. Glance over at 1613, 1920, and 2010. He has a name, the false prophet, the false prophet. We'll just look at chapter 19 together this morning. Chapter 19, verses 19 and 20, just to make this point clear. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. You see the immediate connection back here to chapter 13. We know his identity, sort of, right? He's the false prophet. He's the false prophet. I want to go a step further. I think it's best, and this is where I'm going to track from last week's sermon, I think it's best to comprehend this beast as a counterfeit of the third person of the Trinity, a counterfeit Holy Spirit. The first beast is a counterfeit Christ. The dragon is a counterfeit father. The second beast, the false prophet, is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with John 13 through 17, those wonderful chapters in the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, also called Jesus' farewell address, where he makes it clear to his disciples that when he ascends to heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And if you read through chapters 13 through 17, you'll see Jesus makes it clear that the Holy Spirit will be a helper and a comforter to God's people. The Holy Spirit will empower God's people to work wondrous signs. 
The Holy Spirit will lead God's people into worship, into true worship of, of the Son, right, and of the Father, who will enable God's people to abide in Christ. They'll be sealed by him, belonging to Christ. And he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. If you have a copy of God's word, would you turn to John 16, 13 through 15? I think makes the clearest connection here. John 16, 13 through 15. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, the true Spirit of God exercises all the authority of Christ and brings glory to Christ. The counterfeit spirit exercises all the authority of the first beast and brings glory to the first beast. Having this in mind will help us, I believe, make some sense of what might actually be the most famous scripture in the whole Bible. I know you think it's John 3.16. Everyone knows John 3.16. Everyone knows Revelation 13.18. You've done it before, right? You've been at the store, and your total is 6.66. And you're like, ugh! You're on Realtor looking for a house, and its address is 6.66. You're like, nope. (laughs) Passing that by. I could walk out into an unbelieving world and ask somebody, what's the mark of the beast? That's a 666. That's actually not what the text says. But, but this number actually has some insight into the beast's identity. You see, many commentators, if you've read commentaries on Revelation or if you just read popular books, um, they suppose that 666 is a coded reference. They're stuck on the fact that Revelation's a puzzle book, but it's not. It's a picture book, not a puzzle book. They believe this is a coded reference using an ancient practice known as gematria. Uh, So languages such as Greek and Hebrew, they didn't have numbers. So letters were assigned numerical values. Some were given single digits, others tens, others hundreds, things like that. The idea then is that John is like a secret agent here, right? He's secretly enabling us to identify the Antichrist or the first beast, because the letters of his name in Greek add up to 666. So if you can identify the first beast, you can also identify the second beast, right? A close associate of the first. So using gematria and other systems, Christians, oh boy, I did a deep dive and I almost didn't come out of it. There wasn't enough oxygen in that tank. But in recent years, people have argued that 666 is a reference to Hitler Ronald Reagan, Henry Kissinger, I'll just give a few there, but my favorite though is Craig Keener. He makes a satirical case for Barney, you know that television character, since the words cute purple dinosaur yield the calculation 666. I mean, maybe he was right, I don't know. 
joking aside, the, the person most associated, if you read lots of commentaries with 666, is most people make the case that it's a reference to the Roman emperor Nero. If you translate the name Caesar Nero into Hebrew, the letters add up correctly so that some scholars see John 666 as a code name for Nero. The point is that like him, the, the beast is going to be some popular but depraved tyrant who launches violent persecution against Christians. There's several problems with this even. The, the main problem is that John's original audience are Greek converts. They likely didn't speak Hebrew, which this theory requires them to speak Hebrew. Furthermore, and probably the most problematic, is you actually have to misspell Caesar for the numbers to add up correctly, which is why you have a footnote that some say 616. See, people are grasping at straws here. <laughs> They're trying their hardest to make it fit their theory. I don't know if it's best, but I think a better approach will be to do what we've done all along. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. And I want us to think about the symbolism of the number six. We've encountered seven already in the first few chapters of the book. And you might remember we made the case that seven symbolizes completion. It symbolizes perfection. That's seven. The number six falls short. The number six is incomplete. The number six is imperfect. This describes fallen mankind. Remember, this is the number of man, not the number of beasts. This is the number of man. Fallen mankind is incomplete, imperfect, which is why John says in verse 18 that 666 is the number of a man. I want you to see that the dragon and his two beasts have set themselves up as a fake divine trinity. God's judgment and Christ's victory, which we're going to get to in the weeks to come, praise God, is going to expose this. It will expose them as three times fake and three times a failure. I like what commentator Greg Beale concludes. He says six repeated three times indicates the completeness of sinful incompleteness found in the beast. The beast epitomizes imperfection, he says, while appearing counterfeiting to achieve divine perfection. So the take-home, what I believe is the better approach, of course not the only, was if a God had a number, it would be 777. Three times, perfectly complete, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mankind, apart from Christ, following the beast, has his number, 666. Three times, imperfectly incomplete, following the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So we see then that the identity of this second beast is the false prophet, the third person of the satanic trinity. Well, the second beast has been exposed as the false prophet. We've seen his clear agenda, deceive the world, direct the masses to worship the beast, and destroy those who don't. And in light of this, let's go to our third point. The church's call for wisdom. I had a, a friend who always says, there's a huge difference between being a wise serpent and being wise as a serpent. 
One leads to destruction, and the other often leads to life, even life while losing it. This was the case for Boris Kornfeld. In wisdom, he held his tongue, preserved his life for a while. He held his tongue until he couldn't do it any longer. He was forced to make a choice to serve Christ, and he paid the ultimate price. I think about the hammer that smashed his head, and I think that the beast tried to literally leave his mark upon him, a crushing blow to the head with a hammer. And it ended his earthly life, right? But that mark on his head wasn't the lasting one. He belonged to Jesus. So if you've been tracking through our series in Revelation, you know that he has a different mark on his forehead. We've seen it before, right? We're going to see it again next week. If you just take a sneak peek at chapter 14, verse 1. I'm still in John, that would be different. 14.1 of Revelation. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Put whatever mark you want, physical mark, on Boris Kornfeld's head. He has the mark of Christ the mark of his father. He's been sealed for eternity. He belongs to Jesus and no one else. Likewise, we who follow Jesus belong to him. And like the rest of the church through the ages, all the church through the ages who have read these words and wrestled with them like we are, we live in the shadow of the dragon and his two beasts. His pursuit is relentless and his attacks are severe. That's been the whole point of chapters 12 and 13. So what are we to do? We're to resist. We're to resist. We're to ask God to give us wisdom so that we can discern his deceit. His deceit is all around us, even today. It's in mass media. It's in social media. It's in politics. It's even in places that call themselves churches. I could go on and on. The shadow of deceit casts far and wide. And it takes a strong commitment to Christ, a strong commitment to his word, and a strong commitment to the means of grace to help us endure the effects of this deceit, the onslaught of the deceit. Each and every day, that's what I wrote in my notes, maybe I should have said each and every moment, you're confronted with a choice. Who am I going to serve? Who am I going to serve? Will I serve Christ or am I going to serve the beast? Will I offer my worship to the one true God or the false God? Am I willing to give up my freedoms, even my very life, for the sake of being faithful to God? Am I willing to be cut off from the comforts of society? Am I willing to lose my seat at the cool kids' table? Am I going to be led by the true Spirit of God, or am I going to be led by the Spirit of this age? That's your choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. I tell you, 
The answer of whom we will follow comes easy to us Christians, doesn't it? Christ! I choose Christ! But man, it's hard. Man, it's difficult. Day by day by day by day, it's hard. And we need wisdom. We need discerning wisdom. That's what John is saying here. He called us to perseverance last week, and this week he said, This calls for wisdom. This calls for wisdom. Go to God. Look to God for wisdom. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's masterful work, The Screwtape Letters. And in that book, he chronicles a conversation between two demons. And in one of the letters, the the older mentor-type demon writes to the younger one these words. The younger one's name is Wormwood. He says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, that's God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, and yet he still obeys. Did you catch that? Satan's case is never more in danger than when a human, no longer really desiring to do God's will, but intending to do God's will, looks around the universe every day and says, it seems that God is gone. God, why have you forsaken us? But even so, I'll still serve you. That's the danger. You see, no matter how dark the shadow may be, no matter how powerful the enemy may seem, no matter how strong his grip might feel, There's nothing more dangerous to him than Christians who remain absolutely and completely devoted to God no matter what. The one who says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I will serve Christ and Christ alone no matter what. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee. Have it all. It's yours. Not my will be done, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My prayer is that we would all be such Christians. That each and every one of us who claim the name of Christ, who've been sealed on our foreheads by him, would live for him in this present evil age. We need his grace and we need his strength. And there's a big dose of it coming. There's a big dose coming in the next chapter, so hold on. It's good. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins and turn with me?